Welcome to the Right Take Podcast, news, ideas, and conversations at the intersection of politics and culture, a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center. I will be your host, Mark Tapson. Welcome back to the Right Take Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Tapson. Thanks once again for joining me here at the intersection of politics and culture. Well, another day, another spate of headlines in the news reflecting what I call the state of disunion meaning that the state of the union today, our union, is actually disunion. Our nation is in great turmoil, wrestling with what one could argue is a hopelessly unbridgeable divide between the radical ideologues of the left on the one hand, who hate everything about this country and are hell-bent on fundamentally transforming it, and on the other hand, those Americans that my friend Kurt Schlichter calls the normals. I know you're already aware of this state of disunion, but let me share with you, if I may, just a few headlines currently on the internet that demonstrate this disheartening reality. Here's one. Child removed from home for improper pronoun usage by parents. That's about a Catholic couple in Indiana who were investigated by state officials for refusing to refer to their transgender son by pronouns and a name that did not match his biological sex. Here's another headline. Boston families furious as city kicks black children out of community center to house Biden's migrants. We have an administration and a party now in power that prioritizes illegal aliens over even the so-called marginalized minorities that Democrats claim to champion. Here's another headline. Hospitals claim chest feeding from trans woman is as good as female breast milk. You know, archaeologists of the future are going to look back on this time, if humanity survives this era, and they're going to say that ours was a time of civilizational mental illness. Okay, one more headline. Kamala Harris vows to abolish police departments nationwide as president. Okay, I made up that last one. But it sounds totally believable, doesn't it? Because we live in satirical times when reality is indistinguishable from satire. I spoke about this on a previous podcast episode, by the way with the CEO of the Babylon Bee satire site, Seth Dillon. My point in bringing this up is that our nation, indeed our civilization, is in the grip of an ideological cancer called progressivism that is rotting our culture from within at an accelerating pace, as every day things seem to disintegrate even further into social, institutional, and spiritual chaos. To address this political and cultural scourge, I invited a guest today who is a friend a very interesting guy whose takes on politics and culture are always a combination of enlightening, amusing, sometimes worrying, but ultimately inspiring, and I wanted to bring him on to offer some provocative insights into the state of our disunion. So stay tuned, don't miss this conversation. And let me say, as always, please take a moment to subscribe to The Right Take if you haven't already, so you can keep up with the conversations we are having here with important thinkers, writers, pundits, scholars, and storytellers. And if you like what you hear, a positive review would be greatly appreciated. Thank you, and don't touch that dial. My guest today at The Right Take is a gentleman and a scholar. I've known him for many years. I think he's a really uniquely multifaceted guy who wears a lot of hats. He's a political commentator, screenwriter, a director, an author, a blogger, a pilot, He is, dare I say it, an internet personality. Uh, He's well-known in conservative circles as a very dynamic speaker with a wide range of knowledge about politics and culture, so I'm very glad to have him here at the intersection of politics and culture. 
because there's a lot to talk about in that regard, obviously. Bill Whittle, welcome to the Right Take Podcast. He's a pirate, a poet, a pundit, a pilot, a pawn, and a king. I, I, I don't know, everything. Good to be here. Thank you very much, Mark. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Bill, it never ceases to amaze me uh, how many things you juggle all at once. I mean, if, if people go to BillWhittle.com, I think they will be overwhelmed by the variety of projects and series that you've got going and some of which you've been maintaining for years, like the Stratosphere Lounge and Right Angle. Can you sort through some of that and tell listeners what kinds of things you're working on and what they could expect when they visit your site and or sign up as members? Sure. Well, thank you. First first of all, thank you for that. Um, I am wrapping up something I've been working on um, with Daily Wire for, boy, seven, eight months now. I'm, I'm wrapping up a feature film screenplay that I'm writing about the life of Frank Luke, who was uh, the first uh, American airman to win, to be a, uh, awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. And um, and that's gone a lot longer than I thought. But I basically got three different kinds of uh, shows starting uh, as soon as I finish this, which I expect will be in the next uh, few days. Um, all of them have seem to have one thing in common, Mark. One of them is considerably more political, but not really political so much as social. But all three of them are basically designed to be less of, um, you know, conservative talking head guy and, and much more about fundamental principles and, and sort of the basic underlying philosophies because the division is so high in our country now that people don't even listen to uh, to people if they if they get the sense so so I'm, I'm just determined to not use the words Republican conservative liberal Democrat progressive and I found that whenever we talk about politics we lose but whenever we talk about morality and principles we win so, so to answer your question um, we've got we've got we, so I've, I've got three new series that are in the works um, the uh, one of them is called um, story mechanics and because of the speaking events I've done and an association with a lot of conservatives in Hollywood. It's been an unbelievable honor, and I still can't get over it, frankly, uh, to, to have met a number of um, celebrities like Gary Sinise and John Voight and Mike Rowe and, you know, vagabonds of that ilk. Um, we um, So what I wanted to do was I wanted to talk about how we actually tell stories. The older I get, the more I realize that everything we learn, we learn through stories. And, and if something is being taught to us badly, it's because it's not being told, told to us as a story. Um, my feeling on this was that rather than getting uh, John Voigt, for example, rather than getting his political opinion on something, uh, I want to talk to John about something, John specifically about something, a concept I'm calling, um, I almost called the show Archetypes. Uh, and I want to talk to him about this idea of the heart of gold. He's, he's played a number of characters that are extremely sketchy on the outside, but are saved by the fact that they have this heart of gold, that in the end, there's there's a good a goodness underneath them. And my feeling on this was that by doing things like this, we could get a much larger audience. We wouldn't turn away an audience because it's not about politics. But if you do get to the basics of, of what, what saves people from their own, um, you know, mortal sins, th there is a conservative type message in there. There's a, there's a positive you know, a uh, message about about who we are. And one of the things that the progressive movement uh, I find most reprehensible about them is how they've inculcated hatred of ourselves in, in people, hatred of humanity, hatred of, 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 of Americans, hatred of, of all of it. We're just supposed to hate ourselves. And I, I find that to be kind of sad and, and ridiculous on top of it. Um, so that's one. Uh, 
the one I'm I'm most excited about just because it's most fun is a, a series I'm doing with the Unreal Engine. I've been doing 3D animation since about 92. As a matter of fact, earlier when we were <laughs> we were plotting individual vertices points with XYZ coordinates, you know, and it, it was it was crazy. But uh, but I'm using Unreal Game Engine now, and I'm doing a series called um, Major Mace Mattingly and the Last Men on the Moon. Uh, turns out that there was, in fact, a, a an army study called Project Horizon, where they wanted to have anywhere from 50 to 100 men on a permanent base on the moon, military base, by 1966. So my premise for this, it's all tongue-in-cheek, obviously, is that that actually did happen, and that the uh, that the NASA program was essentially a, a, a diversion, and that there have been four astronauts that have been stuck on the moon since 1966, and they finally decided to reveal their presence because they can't stand watching what's going on down on Earth anymore. So it's it's basically my way of commenting on 2024 through the eyes of 1966 uh, steely-eyed missile man, you know, space age, light, let's light this candle, right stuff kind of thing. And because they're animated characters, they, there's a lot of interplay that I can have with each other. And um, and so basically the, the attitude on this is that it's always 1966 on the moon. These guys uh, build lunar rovers so they can go out and race them. They One of the guys is a, the main guy, Mace Mattingly, is a former surfer. So he's surfing down these mountains on the moon, you know, and kicking up this giant rooster tail of dust and and I just wanted to I just wanted to show the difference between how we look at things today versus how we looked at them back then. So these guys are like just incredible can-do optimists and 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 they can't get over what they're seeing. The the to give you the the uh you know the 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 15 second um teaser pitch or or teaser a trailer would be basically you got these four guys sitting on chase lounges out on the surface of the moon. They've got beer hooked up to their um, spacesuits, so they're sipping a hams and they're watching a typical console TV, you know, like one we grew up with, you know, 24 inch diameter, you know, color TV. And they're sitting there in the shadow of the, of the, this crater and there's the earth up in the sky and they're watching television coming down from earth. And they see the Dylan Mulvaney Bud Light ad and one of them turns to the other and says, see, th- this is what happens when you don't let little boys play with toy guns. And uh, so, th- so that's basically going to be a lot of fun for me. I'm really looking forward to that. And then the, the final new series that we're doing is called Things to Come, which is certainly the most conventional of the things I'm doing. Uh, I've, I've become a, a fan of a book called The Fourth Turning, which makes the case that um, that that human history moves in 80 year cycles uh, because even though the average lifespan has increased enormously, we still live to be about the same age. If we live a long life, about roughly 80 years, roughly the Romans called this the seculum. And um, the idea behind the fourth turning is that, is that these historical cycles happen because society changes the further away we get from the last existential crisis. And, to, to simplify things enormously, the Revolutionary War was fought mostly in the 1780s. If you add 80 years to that, you get the 1860s, which is the Civil War. If you add 80 years to that, you get the 1940s, which is World War II. If you add 80 years to that, you get the 2020s, and here we are. So the, the principle of the idea behind things to come is everybody knew for 20 years that the Revolutionary War was coming, and everybody knew for 20 years that the Civil War was coming, and everybody knew for 20 years that World War II was coming. We didn't know exactly how it was going to form, but we knew it was coming. So that led me to think, well, okay, so what do we see out there now that everybody knows so that when the cycle repeats, we can say, yep, we all knew this was coming. 
And the conclusion I come to, Mark, is that is that the the next crisis for our country is going to be a an internal conflict between the lawless and the law abiding. That's where I think the fault line is right now. Wow, very interesting. Yeah, I was going to ask you about your things to come series, uh, but. It, let me back up just a little bit and ask you about uh, the Story Mechanics Project, because I'm very tr- intrigued by that. I know that you know how important storytelling is to shaping a culture's uh, value and identity, <clears throat> excuse me, values and identity, uh, clarifying and establishing who our heroes are, uh, what our conflicts and triumphs are. I, I think it's especially crucial for conservatives to get more in the game in terms of storytelling and shaping the culture like you're doing. Um, but I do think some conservative culture creators have trouble remembering that good storytelling is inherently conservative and uh, they have trouble resisting this impulse to hammer the reader or, or listener or viewer with political messaging. Can you elaborate a little bit on that and tell us, uh, you know, how, how that works and how storytelling is inherently conservative? I would love to, this is, this is my wheelhouse. This is where I'm at my, at my most comfortable. Um, so uh, my friend Evan say it, said that the the only genuine skill that the that the left that the progressives have in terms of like innate skill for that particular philosophy is he says they have a very high rhetorical intelligence they understand uh with a very high degree of of competence how much you can influence people simply by your choice of words and, and language um and so we have to understand that we're we're fighting constantly on their battlefield. I'll give you a good example of what I mean by their rhetorical intelligence and how stupid we are. Is stupid is not the word. We're not stupid. We're tone deaf is a better uh, better analogy. So you remember when uh, Joe Biden gave his um, his uh, his Nuremberg speech in front of the uh, uh, Independence Hall with the red and black banners and the outline of the soldiers and stuff. And I think he said 19 times that MAGA Republicans were a threat to our democracy. And so what do we get the next two or three days? We get Republicans saying, we're not a threat to the democracy. You're a threat to democracy. And then they don't know we're not the threat to democracy. You're the threat to democracy. And everything's talking about a democracy. Now, which one of the two parties do you think, if we've identified this country as a democracy, which one of the two parties do you think sounds more American to you? Because I'm going to go with Democratic Party on that one. We, we should have immediately, immediately, the next day, come out as a as a as a party and essentially said, Mr. President, this isn't a democracy. This is a republic. We would think you would know that since you're in charge of it. Um, the difference between a democracy and a republic is a democracy doesn't get to vote your rights away. In a democracy, you can vote people up against a wall. In a republic, you can't do that. You have inalienable rights that protect you. And if we had done that, if we just gone with the benefits of the republic, then we'd be talking about our party and what we represent. So we're, we're just clueless when it comes to this kind of thing. But in terms of storytelling being conservative, I, I, I really like to, to talk about this because this this makes people's heads spin. Uh, Hollywood is the most left-leaning industry in the business. There's no question that Hollywood is extraordinarily, well, it's the most, it's the most openly progressive left-leaning business sector in the, in the entire economy. So, Movie makers are are very, very progressive, but entertainment is inherently conservative. And the reason for that is because of the nature of how stories work. Ultimately, it comes down to you've got a man with a gun and a fast car saving a woman from an evil villain who's going to do great harm. That's essentially it. Uh, and, and if you don't believe that 
storytelling is inherently conservative, I would counter by saying that no one's going to go and watch a James Bond movie where James Bond confronts the evil supervillain armed with a strongly worded letter from the United Nations and then drive off in a Prius at a reasonable speed. You know, it's just, it's just, it's nobody wants what they're selling, Mark. Nobody, nobody wants to make stories about protesters. Nobody wants to make stories about social justice warriors. They cannot get away from the fact. I remember when, when one of these school shootings, Sandy Hook, it might have been, I think, where, where um, Jamie Foxx came out about how, you know, how we've got to do something about, you know, locking all these guns up. And I thought to myself, Jamie, how many people have you shot on camera? Is it 50? You know, maybe 50 you've shot on camera. I'll tell mm -hmm. you what, if you're serious about this, Mr. Fox, then just make an open pledge right now to the viewers that you'll never be in a movie again where you're ever required to pick up a gun. Simple, simple, just do that. So, so even they can't escape from the fact that because the essence of conservatism is individualism. I've, I've done a bunch of historical series for Daily Wire. And, and the one thing I found, Mark, is that the labels change so much, it's very hard to, to it, it's, it's easy to wiggle out of a label. But the only two labels that I found that made any sense at all, that have been consistently coherent throughout history, in terms of the difference between the, these two groups is collectivists and individualists. And storytelling is about individuals. You can't tell a story about a collective. It just doesn't work. Even if you're going to do a story about something that may seem a collective like a football team, let's say you're going to do the, the story of Marshall, uh, Marshall University and, and the, that horrible crash they had. You've got 80 some players on a football team, but you're not going to, you're not going to, you're not going to stay with 80 players. You're going to pick two or three players, tell their stories. And, and so you're still back to individualism. And that's what people not only want, that's what we're wired for. It's what we need. And that's why the movie business is committing suicide because today's, today's films are not so much don't today's films aren't bad so much because they're left leaning. They're bad because they're written by people who have no life experiences. They're written by people in their twenties and thirties who have never had to, you know, deal with broken arms, never had to, you know, watch their friends turn into pink mist or even, much less dramatic things than that. Never had to lose baseball games. You know, they're, they've been so isolated and so sheltered that they don't know how to write anything of any depth because they don't have any real experience with that kind of psychic pain. And so all they can do is trot out some title from 20 years ago. And now we're going to make a Mr. and Mrs. Smith series for um, Netflix based on the movie with Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. And no one cares. Uh, you know, conservatives like myself, grouse a lot about the left's cultural hegemony, about Hollywood's woke storytelling, but we don't know much about how to do anything about it. What can conservatives, the average conservative will say, what can they do to support conservative content creators and storytellers and filmmakers? Well, not to put too fine a point on it, but we could certainly use more members ourselves. But but you're, you, with, with that said, kind of tongue in cheek, here's what I think the problem is with, with conservatives and storytelling. Conservatives are, are afraid to express emotion. Now, generally, part of that is due to just to our personalities. We're not, we're not people who wear our hearts on our sleeves and we're not looking for virtue signals or sympathy. But I think the main reason is, is, that, is that conservatives and Republicans have been whipped by liberals who've been using emotion to manipulate people, that the idea of using emotions on our own for our own side is somehow unclean or cheating or something. You know, we, we've seen how you can 
emotionally manipulate people into doing some very bad things for the country. And so we think that anytime we express emotion or try to use any of these fundamental story elements, that there's something fundamentally dirty and, and, and raw, unfair about it. Um, but that's just nuts. There's, you know, I'm sure you're the same way. I'm sure virtually everybody listening to this podcast is the same way. You go to a football game. I was, I was in Dodger Stadium a year or two ago, and everybody stands up at the beginning of the of the game and, and sings the national anthem. And I, and I get a tear in my eye every time, not just because it's the national anthem, but because I look around me and I see all these people. And instead of seeing Republicans and Democrats, I see Dodger fans or Padres fans or, or you know, or whatever. And, and I realize that so much of this, um, so much of this division is pushed down to us from above. And, and if you don't tear up when you see Vietnam veterans in a, in a parade, then then there's something probably missing. And and the reason we get teary about that is because we understand the power of the emotion of the sacrifice that these men made, all of our veterans made. And when I'm a pilot, so I'm a little more susceptible to this than most people. But if you ever have a jet flyover of a beginning of a stadium, you'll watch people just, they'll just scream. They'll just go, yeah. It, it, it evokes this primal reaction to see these 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 darts flying through the air and making that sound of just ripping the air molecules to pieces. And and these are powerful, powerful, powerful tools. And we just leave them on the curb out there to rust. I don't understand it. And I know you don't either. Shifting a little bit from storytelling to the culture at large here, there's obviously a lot of politicized madness going on in the culture today. Is there one issue in particular that concerns you the most about where our culture is headed or or that you find most encouraging for that matter? Well, I can answer probably both of those because I, I, I see two of those things. I think the thing that's probably most encouraging right now is that um, the pushback against this when I say the transgender movement, that's not really got anything to do with transgenderism, honestly. It, it's it's a it's the the bleeding edge of the social engineering acts that they're trying to use on us. It could have been anything. So it's not even really about transgender people, but that is where that's where the fight is. And they certainly seem to we I think we can safely say that we have passed peak transgenderism. Um nobody wants it. And, and if they choose to, if this, this is the hill they want to fight and die on in 2024 election, then they're going to get walloped because it creates inherent contradictions for the democratic voter, for the liberal mind. You, you can't have them both. You can want to have them both. You can want to say, well, who, you know, here's a, here's a man who feels trapped in a woman's body and he wants to compete with the women. She wants to compete with the women. So we should let him do it because, you know, we're, we're the kind, kind hearted uh, liberals who, who are all about people's feelings. And they, so they say, sure, of course. Yeah, let's do that. And then they find out that their daughters who've been on training for the swim team for the last seven years are being beaten by 30 seconds in a pool by by somebody who has not had any surgery or any hormone treatment just felt like a girl that day and now they don't now they're in vapor lock they they don't know how to square that circle and they can't so the more the more absurd these policies become the 
it's not so much even that transgenderism creates conservatives so much as I think it just vacates liberals out of the Democratic Party who, who the, the sensible people who said, I just, I just can't, I just can't go on with this. Uh, I begin to wonder what it's going to take for people who live in Oregon or San Francisco, in, uh, uh, sorry, Portland or San Francisco or Seattle to change the way they vote. They may never change the way they vote. And th that's actually something too, Mark, you know, because for us, politics is just a part of our lives. It's, it's, it's a part of our lives that we would like to keep as small as possible. Um, but for progressives, it's not only their, it's not only politics, it's their religion, it's their family circle, it's their job, it's their, it's their hobby, it's their, it's their dream, it's all of it. And I think the reason that society feels so divided is not because there's a difference between how people look at things, but that politics has pervaded so much of society. The example I just gave, you know, is, is, is okay, your daughter's, a, is your daughter going to be on the swim team or not? How is that a political issue? Well, it, you know, 50 years ago, it wasn't a political issue. 50 years ago, the difference between the Republicans and Democrats would be, well, we're in favor of a 12% tariff. Well, we're in favor of a 2% tariff. And, and that was pretty much it, you know? And, and you can live together with people who disagree with you on issues that are, in fact, strictly political. But when you politicize the culture, when you politicize, uh, you know, people's sexuality, when you politicize the language, when you politicize everything, then people are going to start pushing back. And, and so here we are. And um, it's not pretty, and it's going to get worse, but it will get better, and we will come out of this. On the other side of this, I am utterly convinced of this, that we will come out of this as a better country the same way we did in, in, at the end of the 1780s and the 1860s and the 1940s. We're, we're going we're gonna to have some tough times ahead. If it's not a crisis, it doesn't serve its function. The purpose of the crisis is to is to burn away all of the dead brush, and and things like transgenderism is a is a luxury philosophy that is clogging up the filters. It's it's just kudzu at this point. Maybe I have just a kind of a apocalyptic mindset or worldview, but when I look around at some of this madness, I, I see this. I see the threat of civilizational collapse. I see epic conflicts of good and evil everywhere. Uh, do, you, do you feel that way too, or am I just being hyperbolic? No, no, I, I, I felt that way as every, I think every person who reads the news and who loves the, the, the foundations that this country were built, was built upon, uh, I think everybody feels that way. What changed my thinking was my um, kind of deep study onto, onto the cyclical nature of time. Um, at least in terms of how it affects human behavior. So the authors of uh, The Fourth Turning say that there's basically three ways that a society can look at time. Uh, most primitive societies look at time as chaotic. They don't write things down. They know that something happened at one point. They're not really sure three generations ago which happened before when. Time is essentially a jumble where things just get placed where they fall. Um, he said that second way to look at it is linear. And he said that Americans are the most linear thinking people that have ever existed in the world. So if you think of time as linear, we started at the Declaration of Independence and we're going to end up in the, in the gutter and it's a straight decline like a like a like a wedge like a just a slope. And so if you think of time as linear, things used to be great, we're heading towards bad times and there's nothing on the other end of the bad times except for cratering and the country's over and we're gone and you know and and the communists take over and all the rest of this stuff. But but he said that most most civilizations throughout history have, have thought of time as cyclical because of so many of the cycles of nature. We have the seasonal cycles, we have the cycles of the moon, we have, you know, we have the, uh, 
we age in seasons. We have our, our childhood spring, you know, and we have our, 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 our kind of physical prime of the summer and then our maturity in the fall and then finally our decline in the winter. And so all, all taken together, if, if this general cycle is, idea is true, then we are going to be sailing into some very rough seas. I don't think as rough as the last crisis, to be honest with you. And I certainly don't think as, as rough as the one before that, which was the Civil War. Um, but, but the history shows that, that each one of these previous crises that I mentioned, the people who were living through them all thought it was the end of the country. You know, the, 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 colon, the, the patriots who started the Revolutionary War had plenty of good reasons to think that this wasn't going to work. Uh, the Civil War, up until the final six, seven months of it, many people thought, no, this is the end of the Union. And um, certainly in the, in the months, six months after Pearl Harbor, Americans began to think, my God, you know, the, the, we can't stop these Japanese. Nobody can stop the Germans. We're going to, they're going to be meeting in, you know, in, in Kansas city. And, um, and, and so I think it's re it's reassuring to me personally to know that I'm not the first American generation to feel like everything's going to hell and it's all over. Other generations have felt that and we've come through it and come out better on the other end than we did when we went in. It's no comfort facing what's good. It doesn't make it any easier to watch, but but it makes it easier to bear. Let me take things in a slightly more metaphysical direction here. Do you feel that those of us who are concerned about what's going on about our civilization, you think we are engaged in not just political and cultural warfare, but spiritual warfare? Without question. Without question. Um, I, I make a major effort well, in, in, in everything I do, I make a, a major effort to be fair about things, as fair as I can about things. And so for me, that means when I think about all oh, those damn Democrats, you know, there, there are millions and millions of people out there who vote the way they vote because they've never heard anything different. I consider those to be actual victims, innocent, um, you know, uh, defendants really more than anything. Um, but the people who are pushing these ideologies are, are just plain evil. And there's no question in my mind that they're evil. Um, it's up to each individual person to decide whether or not they believe in a metaphysical evil. But the progressive idea that there is no such thing as good and evil, I think is just a, another patently obvious lie. You, you as an individual person listening to this podcast can decide whether or not you think that there is a metaphysical evil or whether it's just a behavior, a behavioral kind of an evil, but there is evil out there. And, um, and it is motivating a great deal of what we see. For, ex for example, Klaus Schwab and the whole um, World Economic Forum, uh, those guys are evil. Um, they, they may be evil because they're the agents of Satan, or they may be evil because they're powerful, smart people who have this defective gene that n needs to tell other people what to do. But the end result is essentially the same. So on some level, it's a distinction without a difference. Um, they, what they want is evil. What, what Bill Gates wants for us is evil. They want to control us. They want to, they want to be able to tell us what to do. And they think they have a right to command our lives, usually because they think they're smarter than, uh, than the rest of us, which is the sure sign of an idiot, by the way. Um, 
anybody who thinks that he's smarter than 30 million people doesn't understand how computing works. And, uh, and they don't understand things about real-time data and they don't understand things about variations and so on. I saw a pin the other day. I bought it. I bought, the sh I bought a pin, I bought the shirt, and I bought a, a, a coffee mug. I'm uh, going to send the coffee mug to Jeremy Boring, who's a friend of mine. Uh, and, and it's very simple. I'm a big Star Trek fan. And, and, the, and the, the shirt just says, too many Spocks, not enough Kirks. And, um, and I thought, yeah, that's our problem. Too many, too many theorists, not enough people of action, not enough, not enough people of willpower to say that, yes, science is offering a, an opinion on something, and that opinion may be correct, but that opinion on a, on a political issue is not this is not necessarily the answer. I mean, the, the problem with people who who look at science as a religion is that they they well they think it's a religion. Science is a scalpel. It's a it's a it's a way to to look at the world that produces astonishing results. So long as you stay within the bounds of what science can actually do. Political science is an oxymoron, and 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 and, and it's practically a double negative, as far as I'm concerned. So politics is not science, and and if you think that you can apply a scientific solution to to politics, you're nuts. And the the leading proponent of this kind of insanity was Karl Marx and and Lenin and and Mao, who believed that you could run individual lives the way you would run a machine, and they only killed, you know, the estimates range between 100 to 200 million people. That's a lot of people. I, I just finished a series for Daily Wire, hasn't aired yet, called An Empire of Terror. I pitched it as wanting to take a look at each one of the um, leaders of the Soviet secret police. But once I started writing it, it, it went in an entirely different direction, kept coming back, not to Stalin, kept coming back to Lenin every time. And and when you when you think about it, I said, you know, a hundred million people. Oh, that's an easy thing to get over your lips. But if you had, to, if you had a Super Bowl, let's say the last Super Bowl, and you had to evacuate, not not through an emergency, you just you just decided to take everybody out of the stadium through one single door. And if you're on one side of that door while the entire stadium falls out of that door, you're going to see about a hundred thousand faces. It's going to take you hours and hours and hours and hours. So once you've seen every single face of every single person that was in that Super Bowl that day, you've only got 999 more Super Bowls to go through until you see the face of everybody killed by this theory. And, and that is horrifying and, and indisputable. And when you, when, you when you confront people who are proponents of this theory with this, they'll tell you that they didn't do it right. And, and it comes a point when I want to say, well, you know, 30 million people in the Soviet Union, 50, 60 in China, uh, you know, 7 million in Cambodia, uh, several million in Eastern Europe. You know, maybe maybe if we keep doing it wrong, maybe it's not such a good idea. You know, maybe it's just not a good idea. Um, and what I ended up saying in the series was uh, it's not that it's not that Lenin and, and Stalin didn't do it right. And they didn't do it. They didn't do it the right way. They didn't do it the wrong way. They did it the only way. That's the only way you can control people is through terror. And that's what we're seeing in Russia right now, as a matter of fact.
you mentioned the World Economic Forum uh, and these elites who want to control our lives. Uh, one of the things that terrifies me about the whole Davos crowd, these elites, is their obsession with this philosophy of transhumanism, uh, which is the melding of the biological and the, the technological. Do you have any thoughts about uh, transhumanism? I do. Um, there was a time um, when I would have counted myself um, you know, among them when I was younger, and I'm, I've been a science fiction geek and a science fiction writer most of my life, and and to be perfectly honest with you, there 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 are elements. I don't. I think there's enough great science fiction stories out there and Twilight Zone episodes and things like that to convince me that living forever would be probably the greatest curse you could inflict on somebody. But with that said, to be perfectly honest, I wouldn't mind having another hundred or two hundred years because I'm curious to see how things turn out. But what these people believe in is insane. And, and the essence of what I believe they, that they're doing is I genuinely believe that they think that they have the technology to do what was famously said about Walt Disney. It wasn't true about Walt Disney, but there was a time back in the 70s when I was growing up when certain people would have their heads cryogenically frozen or their entire bodies. They're dying of cancer. They die of cancer. They put their bodies in liquid nitrogen and 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 they're they're waiting for the day where we have the technology to thaw out some, you know, 80 year old guy from 150 years ago and spend billions of dollars bringing him back to life so we can learn what. Um, but, but in any event, it's a, it's a fear of death and a, and a fear. I think, you know, it's such a great conversation. I'm really enjoying this so much, Mark, because I just really just flew into my head that really a, a fear of death is, is actually kind of a fear of living in a way, you know, it's, it's, it, 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 it's a fear of living because living includes dying that's part of the living process and and they don't want to die they're and and the reason that they're so terrified of dying and that they're willing to try and build these machines that they can upload their personalities into and they're going to live in cybernetic bodies you know and and they're going to be able to think at the speed of light and all all, all this garbage is is that I think they're so afraid to go because their egos are so enormous. There, there, there is nothing on their horizon other than themselves. And so they, and so they, they, they realize that, well, any means justify the end of my, you know, continuing survival. When Bill Gates is the largest owner of agricultural land in the planet, it's time to start paying attention because um, if he, if you told me that he owned more silicon factories than anybody else, that would be okay. That'd be smart. But when he owns more agricultural land than anybody, that's telling me that these guys are not our friends and, 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 and uh, putting all of the Bill Gates and the vaccine and all of that stuff that he's done publicly aside for a minute, it doesn't escape my um, attention that he was a frequent visitor to Epstein Island. Um, and, and so ended up getting divorced, which was, you know, the, single most expensive personal transaction in history. So, so you have to ask yourself, you know, if these guys are, are really the champions of the, of the common man that they'd say they are, then why are they meeting in secret? And why is, and why is Epstein Island such a mystery? And why is the, the, the manifest of the plane flights down there include people that, that we know to be historically rather morally questionable, like Bill and Hillary Clinton and, and, you know, and, and, and a bunch of others. And some surprising names on those lists, by the way, too. Uh, Steve Colbert on that list, uh, Tom Hanks. Um, but notably, 
not a single conservative that I could think of. I, I haven't seen a person on that list who I would consider a conservative and two notable absences from this list of top people around the world, including Prince Andrew and all the rest of it. Two notable absences are Donald Trump and Elon Musk. Uh, let me uh, bring it back down to the political here for a moment uh, as, as because we're heading into election season. What is your take on this upcoming election? Do you think that we will be able to turn things around and get back on track or are we headed for four more years of, of decay? We are heading for a crisis, Mark. There's no question about that. The, 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 the damage to the foundations is so extensive that we are going to go through another existential crisis. I, I, I don't see any way around that. I personally think if I had to bet today, in fact, most people who had to bet today believe that Donald Trump is going to win and going to win bigly. Um, but I don't think that will solve our problems. I think I think if Trump wins, we will have more of a soft landing. And if he doesn't, then we're going to have more of a crash landing, but it's still going to be hitting the ground. Um, one of the things that interests me very much are, are things like what, what I'm about to talk about real quick. Um, you know, you can set up a poll any way you want to, and you can get any answer you, you want from a poll, depending on how you phrase the question. Um, you know, it's, you know, when did you stop beating your wife kind of, kind of questions. So I don't put a lot of stock in, in polls, but it was pointed out to me by um, certain people that when you're betting, when you're actually betting money on an outcome and you have skin in the game, you're not virtue signaling. And so John Stossel opened up a, a website. I'm just checking it out now uh, by Maxim Lott and John Stossel, where he takes a look at what, where is the money? Right now, it's something like $40, $50 million on the line. You, you can, in, 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 um, you know, in, in Vegas, you can bet on anything. I mean, it's literally anything. Who's going to be the next president of Harvard? They'll, they'll, they'll take your money. So if you look at the betting odds where people are putting their actual cash, I'm looking right now as of this morning, which is we're recording this on the morning of the February, February 20th, the Pacific time. Um, right now, as I, as I look at the website, here are the uh, results for the 2024 presidency as the money sits. Donald Trump, 51%. Uh, Joe Biden, 31%. Michelle Obama's third with 5%. Uh, Newsom, 2%. Harris, 1%. Kennedy, 1%. Haley, 1%. And, and everybody else. Other has more votes than the, than the bottom four. So a 20-point spread, which is widening, um, is, is a significant crazy significant win. More importantly, I look at things like, um, so I, I, I mean, I don't mean any disrespect whatsoever to the, to the associates I have in this business. I think of every one of them with the highest regard, but when you talk about guys like Ben Shapiro or, or, or Mark Dice or, or, or any of these guys, um, Glenn Beck or Sean Hannity, all of them, their, their data net consists of political things. And I like to go and look at pop culture things. I like to look at body cam videos uh, in terms of what what's going on on the streets with police. Yeah, I'm completely hooked on these things. Um, and and I and I listen to video gamer channels and you know and and I just look at things. And I saw a, a comic who was doing a stand up routine in the heart of San Francisco. And he, and he was about to make a Biden joke. And somebody in the audience just shouted out, "It's like just don't, just don't." You know, we don't want to hear any Biden jokes. And the heckler was shouted down in San Francisco by people saying, no, no, tell the joke, tell the joke. Now, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that Donald Trump's going to win the election. But it does mean that that 
it's another small indication that the scenery is changing and that, and that people have had enough of this. Um, I, I think, I think 2020 election was a, was a sneak attack on this country. I think it was our Pearl Harbor. Uh, I, 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 I think it looks like a sneak attack for any number of reasons, not the least of which was all of the things that we should have been watching for that night. We weren't watching for, and we didn't know we should have been watching for them until two, three days had passed. I was on um, the daily wire um, broadcast for that, that election results. They, you know, they put me on, you know, I'm the after midnight guy. They fill in when, when, when Jerry Lewis on the telethon has to go to the bathroom, chuck me on stage. But, but during, um, during the time I was on, cause you, you may remember the 2020 election was about to be called. And then it just halted for three hours. Nothing happened. And, um, and Donald Trump came out and said, there's something fishy going on. Ben Shapiro said, Oh, that's the most irresponsible thing I've ever heard. There's no evidence of that whatsoever. And I said, Ben, Five states have stopped counting. This has never happened before. That doesn't, you don't find that odd? I find that very odd. They've just stopped counting for the night and they're going to open in the morning? When has that ever happened? Never. So what I mean by having a sneak attack is uh, at the, I, I can never get these right, Mark. Is it the Allstate Center or the State Farm Center in Atlanta? I can never remember those. It's a giant uh, it's it's like it like Atlanta's single greatest voting, um, you know, district center. Anyway, okay, so so they closed that down um, before they called Georgia for Trump, and they they closed it down because they said there was a burst water main. And I thought, well, that's convenient. When I heard it in real time, and three hours go by, still no word. Georgia hasn't been called yet, and then we wake up the next morning, and it turns out that Trump's lead in all of these states has suddenly disappeared. Um, in in the in the five or six battleground states that he was winning and had to win, and then the next morning they were gone. And and if if you look, I'm going to call it all state. If, if I got it wrong, you got it wrong. Um, but if you look at the footage from the all state thing, you'll see the the supervisors, the election officials, coming out and saying to the Republican and Democratic observers, the the the, the nonpartisan observers. Basically saying, look, we have to shut the place down for the night. We're sealing all the votes. We'll be opening again tomorrow morning at nine. Come back at eight o'clock, and um, and we'll start counting again. And you watch these people just get up and walk out because why would they think any differently, right? I mean, what, what the idea was is as inconceivable as Pearl Harbor was. Uh, it's just inconceivable. And then the next thing you know, it happened. So yeah, I think it was a sneak attack. But the good news is, good news is. You only get one sneak attack per war. Um, the, in 2024, if they say, you know what, we've got a little problem here. All of you guys just go home. And we'll see you in the morning. Uh, no, no, I don't think so. Um, so, you know, whether they can cheat their way out of 2024, I don't know. I, I've taken a look at the, some of the source data, and I've heard statistical analysis from from engineers and aeronautical engineers. These are people who are not politicians. These are people who process data for a living. And they say, there's no question. There were a lot of irregularities there. And, and I believe it. So the question is, can they, can they swing it again? And I used to think that there was a, a margin of victory that exceeded the margin of cheating. But what we appeared to be seeing, I'm going to just say appeared to be, because I don't have the hard evidence of this, but what we appeared to be seeing was a, a system that was designed to 
constantly readjust the vote count depending on how highly Donald Trump was was leading. If Biden's leading, you you don't want to add evidence by cheating. You don't need to cheat in the precinct where Biden's leading. But what seemed to be happening was that the larger Trump's lead got, the more votes got flowed over to Biden. And needless to say, a significant number, maybe, you know, three quarters of these ballots turned out to have no down ticket votes just for president. No, no, no votes on water, you know, proposals or no votes on who's going to be the dog catcher. Just just president, you know, inked in seems a little suspicious to me. They don't have our best interest at heart. Mark. You've offered a lot of uh, helpful and encouraging notes here, I think, which I'm glad to hear. Uh, what do you think people in their everyday lives, conservatives in their everyday lives can do to fight the good fight? I, I mean, you've, like I said, you've offered up some hope and you see victory on the horizon, wherever that horizon may be. Uh, but what can people in their everyday lives do? Let me just say, as far as the victory goes, you're not going to surpass. I don't think anyone will ever surpass um, what I think the, the single most important man in terms of World War Two was, and that's Winston Churchill. And he didn't come in here saying, hey, we're going to win. Everybody relax. He came in and said, I have nothing to offer you but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. It's not going to be fun. It's going to be a, it's going to be a, a, a real fight. It's going to be chaotic, and it's going to be ugly. Um, it's going to get much worse before it gets better. So I didn't want people to think I was in this kind of Pollyanna space. Eh, it'll be fine. It's not going to be fine, but, it will, but we will win. Um, and so what I would urge them to do is really just two things. First of all, I would urge them to avoid, and this is hard. I'm going to be completely honest with you here. Well, I'm completely honest with you all the time, but this one, what I really should have said is this one's a little harder to admit to. Um, one of the first things we have to do is, is make sure we don't fall into the, to the pit of hatred because these are our countrymen. Most, all, almost all of them um, are people who are well-intentioned and who have a completely different information base than we do. Now, the people that are the actual architects of this, those people are mean-spirited sons of guns, and I'd be happy to see them straight to perdition. But generally speaking, I don't think it's it's a good idea to, to, to get your hatred levels up too high because um, – it's corrosive. It's it's just acid. It's not good for you, and 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 it's not good for the country. Um, but I think the single most important piece of advice would be that this particular conflict is not going to be a shooting war. It's going to be an information war. It's going to be a narrative war. It's going to be a psychological war. There's no question that the that the pandemic was a psychological experiment in real time in terms of what we would take and not take. So so the single piece of advice I would give to your listeners now is. Do not be discouraged because that is their objective, period. That's it. These people cannot win unless we give up. And, and they will continue to tell us that victory is impossible. They will continue to make our lives miserable. They could continue to give us examples of decay and destruction. And they will, and they will amplify that sense of hopelessness and bitterness and, and regret and, and, and especially that sense of, resignation like it's, it's all over it's not even worth going to the, the polls anymore it's all it's all fake nobody can. that is their objective and if you if you understand that that sense of 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 despair is what they are trying to achieve then don't give them the win um i'm determined not to give them the win that doesn't mean i don't have bad days there's days when i hardly can get out of bed but nevertheless with that said um keep your chin up and um and, and this old ship of ours has been through uh, rough waters at least three times before. 
And all three times, we didn't know if we were going to make it through, but we did. And we'll get through this one too. Excellent. Well said. And a good note to go out on. Bill, obviously, to keep up with what you're doing, people could, people could just go to BillWhittle.com. But what about following you on social media? Where should people go for that? Well, since I think social media is a handcrafted tool of the devil himself, uh, <laughs> I don't really... I, the, the, BillWhittle.com, the best way to find most of my stuff is is uh, to f- uh, find um, Bill Whittle channel on YouTube, where, um, for example, we do a show four times a week called Right Angle, which we've been doing since we started at PJTV. So we haven't missed a week of Right Angle since 2008. Um, but uh, to give you an idea of how this connects to um, what I just said, virtually all of my videos are there on the Bill Whittle channel at YouTube. But when we started doing the right angles back in 2014, we would routinely see 40 or 50,000 views for each episode. We do four, four or five different episodes a week, 40, 50,000, something like that. And then overnight, overnight, it went to 19,000, 20,000, 17,000. And then it stayed there for a while. And then overnight, it went down to 11,000. Now it's down to 4,000. I have, I have 187,000 subscribers on YouTube. And I put out a video and it gets seen by 4,000 people. So something's going on um, over there. That's but, not suspicious at all. No, but, it's, but it is designed to fill me with despair and resignation and make me think that my time has passed and that I no longer have a voice and that it's not worth doing anymore. It's a, it, this shadow banning is a powerful, powerful psychological weapon against people who um, they don't want to hear. And so I just have to tell myself, well, even if the numbers are real, and they are real, you know, I, I go to events sometimes and people say, Bill, good to see you. What are you doing these days? Same thing I was doing before. I haven't seen your stuff in my feed for four years. Yeah, well, I know, I know. But, you know, Mark, if you're taking flack, it means you're over the target, right? So um, anyway, BillWhittle.com is where, is where you can find all the new stuff, and we'd love to see you over there. Bill Whittle, thanks for making the time to come on The Right Take, and keep up all this very interesting work, and come back anytime, brother. You, you fight the good fight, too, pal. It's a pleasure talking with you. Listeners, thank you for joining me here at the intersection of politics and culture. Don't forget to subscribe to The Right Take so you can keep up with all the important conversations we're having here. And again, if you like what you hear, please leave that positive review. Be seeing you. The Right Take with Mark Tapson is a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center and Front Page Magazine. Unauthorized reproduction of this podcast without express written consent is prohibited.